Good evening, Clarice. I thought you might like your podcast back, Doctor. Just until you get your view. How very thoughtful. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Downplaying co-ops. Now playing podcasts in the movie review show. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You were telling me about this podcast back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've gone to their website now, playingpodcast.com. Have you? Everything you need to know is there in those pages. Then tell me how. First, principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob. What is their nature? What do they do, these podcast hosts you seek? They review movies. No, that is incidental. They watch all movies in the Hannibal Lecter series from 1986's Manhunter through the prequel Hannibal Rising. They review one movie each week. That is their nature. And how do they do these reviews, Clarice? Make an effort to answer now. They just... No. They review with in-depth analysis, including detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't you hear the coming spoilers, Clarice? All right, yes. Now please tell me how. No. It is time to listen to the show, Clarice. Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. No. I will listen now. Today, we're discussing Manhunter. Do you see? (laughs) Starring William Peterson. Do you see? Joan (laughs) Allen. Do you see? Brian Cox. Do you see? Dennis Farina. Do you see? Tom Noonan. And directed by Michael Mann. I'm Arnie, the Red Dragon of Now Playing. (laughs) Very good, sir. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. And we are beginning our Hannibal Lecter series with a film that I think a lot of people don't know has Hannibal Lecter in it until they buy the box set of the Blu-rays and go, what is this movie from the 80s? (laughs) You know what? I am thoroughly excited to finally be getting to Lecter. This is a very big one for me. I am an enormous fan of this character and probably most of this series. I definitely feel like I can't wait to return to all the movies. I saw them all, with the exception of Manhunter. I was a little too young. I saw them all in theaters, and it's been a while, really, for all of them, except maybe Lambs, that I've seen them since. I'm kind of a casual fan on this one. I'm a big fan of Silence of the Lambs. And in the early 90s, I was really into the serial killer genre, the sociopath genre. I was watching Silence of the Lambs and Clockwork Orange and all this stuff and got really into Thomas Harris. I have actually read both Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon back in the 90s, saw Manhunter after I saw Silence of the Lambs, watched both films multiple times. Then Hannibal came out and... A friend of mine was reading it, and I couldn't wait to read it until his review told me not to. And then I saw Hannibal in theaters and thought, well, hmm, my fandom started to wane. I then saw Red Dragon in theaters, and I gave up. 
You never made it to Rising, huh? Never seen Hannibal Rising, so this will be my first time revisiting all the post-Lamb films, first time seeing Hannibal Rising. And I guess I'm the newbie. I mean, of course I've seen Silence of the Lambs. It's considered a classic, though I didn't see it for years, probably 10 years after it came out. Never saw it in high school, saw it once I was in college. And I've seen Red Dragon, I saw that in the theater, don't remember much about it, but... All those Hannibal movies, they never drew me in. Well, I'll talk about Silence when we get there next week, but I enjoyed that film. But the character, I never wanted to go back just to see a movie starring him. So I've seen a couple of these. Not a whole lot of memories, though, for me. Now, Jacob, coming into this, had you heard of Manhunter before? Yes, I heard of Manhunter because, like I said, I saw Red Dragon in the theaters. And when that was coming out, everyone was talking about, oh, this has actually come out in theaters before as Manhunter. And so because of Red Dragon, I knew that there was an original version. I just had no desire to go seek it out, though. But, Stuart, I really think that for Halloween, we should kind of go back to now playing's roots. We started with horror. So why aren't we doing horror? (laughs) I know. You've groused off air about this a lot. To me, Hannibal Lecter is up there with all of the ones you talk about and in fact surpasses Freddy, Jason. I mean, he, he deserves his place there. I recognize that this is a higher caliber of slasher, but it, he counts. This is a horror movie icon. I don't know if I'm going to say a horror movie icon. Of course, Hannibal, the face mask, everything from Silence is just so iconic, but at least the two films I've seen, they don't strike me as horror films. I'm not a person that goes out and see horror a lot. When I watch these, they're psychological thrillers. Yeah, they have serial killers, but they don't seem like slasher horror movies to me, at least. I agree completely. The difference between a horror film and this, which is really just a cop film. I mean, this is an episode of Hunter. You know, it's got a serial killer. It's got a little bit of latex and some... Cairo syrup thrown around for some blood, but I don't see these as horror films. These films are not to scare. These films are to intrigue and to cause suspense. They're suspense thrillers, psychological thrillers, but to me, this is not horror, and I think a lot of listeners are going to be pissed that we're not doing Hellraiser instead. Just to go off what Arnie's saying... Arnie and I, along with Marjorie, we did Saw, which featured a lot of cops trying to chase a serial killer. To me, those were horror. There was lots of that blood and that gore and all the weird traps. You know, you could say these two franchises are similar about FBI agents and cops trying to hunt down a serial killer. But that aesthetic is just so different here. Is it because this is good? Well, I've only seen two of them. (laughs) But are you saying that there's something wrong with the horror genre that you can't have good horror movies? I I don't understand. No, I was thinking a dig at Saw, but I uh... I get that, but. I don't know. I mean, how is this any less horror than another cannibal we've covered, Leatherface? The difference is in the details and the fact that Texas Chainsaw was a grueling experience, not just because it was bad, but because it was intending to put the audience through discomfort, whereas these films aren't there. I think the difference is basically in how it's portrayed. I mean, you hit somebody over the head and... If they get up, it's comedy. If they stay down, it's horror. It's all about portrayal. And I don't think that these directors and these creators felt like they were making horror films. The purpose of a thriller and a horror film is both to scare, to raise the pulse, to get the adrenaline flowing, correct? The emotional impact should be the same. To me, horror 
typically means supernatural. That's my take on horror, is if it couldn't happen in the world that we all understand, then it's probably horror. But if it involves real human beings doing monstrous things, that's more like a thriller. And slasher can be either of those. It can be a supernatural monster, or it can be a human monster. But this, to me, is... At the end of the day, a gratuitous series. It is about people that do incredibly vile, sick things. And I feel like the difference is quality and not really intent. Well, Stuart, we'll get to it in a few weeks, but maybe you're right when we get to like Hannibal. Because one of the things that turned me off in the movie, but I think there was a perception that that was a more typical horror type of movie, at least from the talk that I heard when that came out. And since that's not really my genre, as much as I liked Silence of the Lambs, I had no draw to go see that. So maybe as we go through these films, we'll see more of those horror elements that Arnie and I think of with the genre come out. Well, I'm certainly not going to argue that this first film doesn't feel like a police procedural. And I think that has largely to do with the fact that there's entirely different creators behind the camera than there will be for much of the rest of the series here. This one, Manhunter, feels very different from the rest. And you're right. I'm not getting super horror vibe because, well, it's not as graphic as the later films go. It doesn't play into the emotions as much. But I don't know, guys. I feel like, at the end of the day, how can you not list... Hannibal Lecter, particularly Hopkins Hannibal Lecter, in with Freddy, Jason, Michael. He belongs there, right? Here's the only thing I can say in Stewart's defense. And that is when I was in college, I was in speech class and I did an audiovisual presentation of some of the most graphic, horrific scenes from film that I could find. And I included Carrie, Christine, RoboCop with the shooting of Murphy and the guy in the toxic waste. Hellraiser with Frank getting torn apart. And yes, I included the scene from Silence of the Lambs where Hannibal escapes and flays the guy. So to me in 93, it did seem that that scene was enough. That said, IMDB under genre, we have crime and we have thriller. We do not have horror. Well, these things, is it even that important to classify? If I get a good jolt out of something, it really doesn't matter. David Lynch isn't horror, but some of his stuff has really scared me, too. Hell, I got scared at 2001. I mean, what I'm really looking for when I'm going into a movie that's well-crafted, that looks at the fantastical, is will it transport me there? And these movies really do show me a face of evil. Some of these movies, I should qualify, give me what I'm looking for when I go look for a horror movie. It's the same impulse that makes me love some of my favorite horror movies. So, I don't know. I hope that our viewers will forgive us, then, that uh, we're not doing Hellraiser or, what's left, Leprechaun? Children of the Corn. (laughs) Hey, I champion this series if those are the alternatives. I'm happy to do (laughs) Hannibal. Exactly. I feel like we had to get the lector, and I'm glad it's this year. I'm glad it's now. I wanted to go back to this series, and I wanted to read the books, too. I'm going to go ahead and plug the fact that over at Books and Nachos, I'm reading all of these for the first time, all the Thomas Harris novels that inspired the movies. Manhunter is 
based on his 1981 novel, Red Dragon. You can go over to booksandnachos.com right now. You can hear my thoughts specifically about that book. I'm going to talk a little bit about how Manhunter is different from the book, but to really get into what the book does and my further thoughts about Lecter as he came from the page and his real origin, you can go check that out over there. Great. And speaking of differences between the movie and the book, there's also differences between the movie and the movie. Yo, isn't that the case? Man, I haven't seen this many iterations of a movie since we covered Blade Runner, Jacob. I mean, (laughs) let me go through this. This movie was released in 1986, summer. A big summer, I might add, for now playing movies. We had Karate Kid, Poltergeist 2, Howard the Duck, the Transformers movie, Friday the 13th. A lot of the things we've already covered, all of them had an installment in 86. Wasn't Star Trek 4 86? It wasn't summer, but it was Ah. 86. Yes, you are correct. Same year. But theatrical cut is not the version that you can find on, I believe at this point, any in-print copy of Manhunter. It just doesn't exist anymore. Even though we have versions that are called theatrical, there is no theatrical version on DVD anymore that was released in America. Shortly thereafter, when the movie went to cable, Michael Mann went back. He was dissatisfied with some of the things he saw in the movie, and he cut it for a Showtime movie channel edit. And they played the hell out of this movie. I had Showtime at the time, and boy, every time I turned on TV, it was Manhunter, 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 a commercial for Manhunter with the heartbeat theme. I could sing that song without ever having seen the movie. It's really the cut when they released the later DVDs called Director's Cuts, or there's kind of two Director's Cuts. These are all variations on the Showtime cut. Now, there's also a theatrical cut that was released in DVD. That is actually a work print that was incomplete and didn't have all of the sound and music cues in it and was never screened in a movie theater. So they went with that print because it was in better condition than any theatrical print that they had. So there you go. We got one, two, three, four, five different versions of Manhunter. Which ones did you guys see? Or do you even know? I saw whatever came on the Blu-ray. Now, in my research, after you told me there were multiple cuts, I looked and I found two cuts listed. There's the 120-minute cut, which is called theatrical, and then there's the 124-minute cut, which is called director's. My cut was the 120-minute cut. So just to clarify, that was a unscreened work print. And I saw the 124-minute cut. I had no idea what cut it was either when I watched it. I had to do some research afterwards. So I guess I watched the director's cut. Okay. I saw both of those versions. I also saw the version that ran on cable a very long time ago, although my memory wouldn't be able to speak to what I saw. And I listened to the commentary on the very new or the latest director's cut as well. So I can talk a little bit about the variations. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to go ahead and refer to two different versions, theatrical and director's cut. That's mostly what you're going to find if you go into the store or go to Netflix. Those are the versions that are most widely available. And I can talk about the subtle differences, but the numerous ones between those two different cuts. And also, I saw whatever the VHS release was back in... 80s and 90s so seeing that many times back then and then rewatching it now and i saw this last year because 
I had no clue Stuart was going to claim it's horror. We should do it. I thought we were just in spandex land. So I watched Manhunter just to see how it lived up to my memory. And so I saw whatever they broadcast on Showtime as well. So I've seen three times and I can't tell any difference between them. But I didn't watch them back to back to back like you did, Stuart. Yeah, a lot of the differences are just in timing, the way that he cuts between different shots. Details of the case sometimes get omitted or added. They're very, very subtle. I feel like there's probably two scenes that really, really count. And when we get to those parts in the movie, I'll clarify. Well, why don't we jump into the movie, Stuart, and why don't you give us a plot summary? Okay, I'll give one that's general enough to speak to all versions of Manhunter. Fourteen years before he led television's Las Vegas forensic team, actor William Peterson played Will Graham, the crime profiler credited with catching Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Graham finds monsters like the infamous cannibal psychiatrist by becoming their mirror image, retracing each step of their brutal crimes with an intensity identical to the perpetrator's bloodlust. It takes a mental toll, and Manhunter starts three years after Lecter's capture with the traumatized investigator retired to a Florida beach house with his wife and young son. Now, FBI agents are currently stumped by a serial killer who executes entire families in their beds every full moon. They need Graham back on the force to find the link between two slaughtered households in Birmingham and Atlanta, and then hopefully identify the culprit before a new lunar cycle results in more bloodshed. Graham assures his reluctant wife that his work on the case will be safe and anonymous before flying to the Atlanta crime scene. And there he reenacts the killer's break-in and ponders the post-mortem placement of broken mirror shards over each family member's eyes. The profiler eventually concludes that this killer gets approval from seeing his reflection in the dead family's faces, and that further fuels a decadent, biting fantasy he has with the mother's corpse. Now, needing to go deeper into the mind of this killer, Graham pays a visit to his nemesis, Hannibal Lecter, in his Baltimore prison cell. And then sleazy tabloid journalist Freddie Lowndes gets wind of this reunion and publicizes a sensationalized story linking Will and Hannibal to the investigation of this new serial killer, and he nicknames him the Tooth Fairy. Pissed at the publicity, Graham assaults Freddy for putting his family in danger, and that's a predicament Lecter is happy to exploit further by using the personal section of Freddy's tabloid to tell the Tooth Fairy where Graham's wife and son live in Florida. But rather than acting on Lecter's tip and killing Graham's family, the serial killer kidnaps Freddy Lowndes, the journalist, and forces him to audio record a retraction of his story and rename the Tooth Fairy, rebrand him as Red Dragon named after a fearsome William Blake painting. The killer plants a signature bite on Freddy's lips before burning him alive in the parking lot of his Chicago office. Meanwhile, lurid clues and phone conversations with Lecter are warping and further alienating Graham from his spouse, and the Red Dragon, who is in actuality a deformed film developer named Francis Dollarhide, his rage is actually softening because he's met a blind co-worker named Reba who showed some romantic interest in him. So that by the time that Graham has concluded that both murdered families had their 8mm home movies processed by Dollarhide at a St. Louis film lab, Dollarhide has taken Reba hostage to his secluded woodland home and fully transformed into the Red Dragon. 
And just seconds before he's about to carve her up with mirror shards, Graham bursts through the window, single-handedly taking him out in a hail of gunfire, saving the day, and comforted by the fact that his journey to the dark side has protected the innocent, Graham returns to his own Florida family, brandishing some pretty ugly facial scars and some even uglier short shorts (laughs) as credits roll. Yeah, the fashion in this is intense. Is there anything more 80s than this movie? I have to ask you. We've seen a lot of movies from the 80s. We grew up in the 80s. Has there ever been a more 80s movie we've taken in than Manhunter? I have to know. If it is, I can't recall. Yeah, I felt like I was flipping through the photo album at some point in this movie. (laughs) It really took me back. Let's just say, yeah, from the abundant use of Aquanet, this movie screams 80s. And not just in the fashion. I mean, that's what hits you first but really the music the technology the things that they are doing to track the killers there are so many times i had to slap my head when i'm like why aren't they using their cell phone why is this happening because it wasn't invented yet i mean there's rolodexes (laughs) card caddies i mean fax machines (laughs) they reference a vhs player and they can't just say oh there's a vhs player there no it's half inch vcr tape that's how specific (laughs) they have to get because there's no standard they set it up special for him. He's at the hotel. They're like, we just want to let you know we brought in the VCR. <laughs> special for you to work on your crime thing. This high technology. It's amazing. And I've got to say, having read the book, an important detail here hinges on the fact that these home movies were made on 8 millimeter film. Is it pushing it that in 1986, these upwardly mobile families were not shooting on camcorder? My dad took on this project for his father of converting all the 8mm stuff to VHS tape in the early 90s. And I don't remember seeing any 8mm past the 70s from what I remember. Well, Stuart, in 1984, you and I made an 8mm video, our first movie-making effort. This came out in 86, so... Yeah, I mean, maybe, but keep in mind, these targets also looked like they would have been first kids on the block to have them. They weren't going without. In 1986, you're really pushing it by claiming that families themselves would have waited to film themselves on film and send away for it. Reading the book, I had that issue. We're going to see this story told again, you know, so many years later with Red Dragon. I'm curious to know how they handle the problem, but as dated as this movie is, it almost feels like it's too far beyond the pale to even tell the story they're here to tell. I mean, technology has moved so far from this point, and this movie is just a screaming reminder of how far we've come in fashion, but also forensics. (laughs) It's new science. And more to the point, how novel it was in 86 to think about tracking a serial killer and all the methods of doing it. And now turn on your TV. I mean, that's all that people are doing. How many CSIs are there? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really? I mean, and copies of CSIs. It's incredible how far we've come. And I guess it would be 25 years since Manhunter. One of the big things that I got a laugh out of was our hero, Will Graham, is walking around with his micro cassette recorder. Yes. <laughs> recording everything. I want to know who's listening to it because he's walking around. You watched them, you son of a bitch, didn't you? Didn't you? 
I want to know who's getting these tapes. Is it Diane at the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Is she also taking Cooper's tapes? Yeah, we never see him replay them. It's obviously a device that allows him to speak his thoughts to the audience where normally he's by himself reliving a murder and would have no reason to actually say to himself out loud what he's discovering through this process. But I'm glad they had this device rather than voiceover. And I think that as we'll get into it, and talk about it, I think there's a parallel to the way that Will uses tape and the way he, the killer he's tracking uses tape as well. They have a similar method. So that said, when's the last time you ever recorded something on cassette? Again, I'm just slapping my head. 93, actually. I used cassettes to record classes in college instead of attending. I was busy writing Freddy papers. <laughs> Arnie, you and I already had this micro cassette conversation during Saw, and, and we were wondering, <laughs> that seemed a little dated then. Yeah, I think I'm fine with micro cassettes. The digital recorder wouldn't be invented for another... 15 years here. I don't know. Going to 86, it seems all right. You were talking about the procedural, and he's going around, he's doing these tapes things. I didn't really see him doing so much CSI stuff as he seemed to be more of the psychological profiler, right? Oh, he's not CSI. There is no CSI. There's no DNA at this point. There is nobody taking samples of blood or any of that stuff quite yet. Well, no, they're pushing that. I mean, they talk about they find dried saliva from the suction cup on the glass. They're looking for fingerprints. They do have hints of that stuff. It's nowhere near what it is today, though. Yeah. It seems like it's very cutting edge at this point. They're not able to determine exactly who a person is by their hair and blood droplets that they leave behind. The way that they can finger someone now is yeah. not possible. They can definitely use that as a way of narrowing the field and creating a profile, but there's no smoking gun in any of the DNA evidence that they come up with here. And later in the movie, I believe they say they have to look for these fingerprints manually. It's not like some computer <laughs> search. It's someone sitting there, like, comparing slides together. Yeah, we have a database, and if it's in there, we'll find them. If not, oh well. This is definitely a very crude and rudimentary science from where William Peterson will be 14 years later on television. Let's talk about William Peterson, since he is ostensibly the star of this movie, even though we've kind of skewed it towards Lecter. It would be foolish to call Lecter the star of this movie. What'd you guys think? It's kind of cold, <laughs> this William Peterson. Cold? Uninteresting? Don Johnson-esque? <laughs> I really found Graham to be a problem with this movie. And that's funny because I did not remember it as such. But I don't know that I've seen Peterson in anything else. But the reason I think I haven't is because I don't think he can act. I really do not like him in this. And it will be a problem that lasts the whole movie. Wow, I liked him in this. I don't know him from if he has any other work, but I liked how he played Will Graham. I mean, this movie, I didn't really remember what the story was from Red Dragon, so when I'm watching Manhunter for the first time and it felt like the first time I was seeing this story, but this seemed like a very different way to tell a story than we get today. They kind of just throw you in. And I'm, what's up with Will Graham here? Why is he so aloof? Why is he so wooden? And so that kind of intrigued me. Why you call it bad acting? I thought that was part of his character. And why does he seem so disconnected? And so that kept me intrigued throughout this movie, trying to find out what's going on, what happened in his past. Because 
unlike modern movies where they give you all the backstory right up front and spell it all out for you, this movie does not do that. And you got to figure it out as it goes along. I agree with both of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a mixed feeling that I have when I look at this central character. On one hand, I realize it's by design that he's aloof, that he's cold, that he is not relatable to the audience, that he is meant to stand apart and he is not to be emotive and that he is supposed to keep us at arm's length and that he is supposed to grow from a family man back into a killer. He doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity to do too much. He is mostly taking in information, internally processing it, and it having it change his character. That said, I don't see a lot going on in his eyes. And I kept feeling like a better actor, like some of the other choices I read when I heard about this, Jeff Bridges being a perfect choice, would allow me to see the wheels turning, what's going on in his head. And I feel like Peterson's kind of got a blank slate here. And it's, for my taste, a little too blank. Here's the problem. This guy, for the first hour of the film, is our central focus. He's in pretty much every single scene. And yeah. even if he's supposed to be this family man on the path to empathizing with a killer and this damaged guy who his last encounter, which we'll find out to be against Lecter, left him in such a fragile state he quit the FBI. You've got to either like him or admire him or find him cool. I mean, if you look at Michael Mann's perhaps his most omnipresent influence would be his creation of the TV series Miami Vice. And there I said this guy reminds me of Don Johnson, and it kind of is like it's trying to be that Don Johnson, hard-ass, tough guy. But Don Johnson exuded a cool and a charm that William Peterson can't even throw a stone at. You're right about that. And the studio wanted Don Johnson to do it. It was Michael Mann who went with the relatively unknown Peterson. He had seen a rough cut of William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., which... Peterson was the star. It was his breakthrough star and said, I want this guy. And it should just be said now, I see a huge influence of Friedkin on this. We just have been finishing covering The Exorcist. I feel like the way that this story is put together is exactly like a William Friedkin movie. Like if you went back and saw To Live and Die in L.A., French Connection, or even Cruising, his police procedurals, I feel like Michael Mann is in homage to that. And him seeing To Live and Die in L.A., he wanted to ride on that. He wanted the guy that starred in that to be the star of this movie. And believe it or not, he actually wanted the director, William Friedkin, to play Lecter. That was his original choice. Stuart, we talked about this with Blade Runner, because I started getting Blade Runner flashbacks. You're not wrong. <laughs> with Will Graham here. You know, Harrison Ford and Blade Runner, we talked about, do we empathize with Harrison Ford in that film? Do we feel for him, or is he too cold? Maybe it's because of all the synth yeah. music going on in Manhunter here, which I actually really enjoyed. I like that. It gave me that Blade Runner, Clockwork Orange type feel. I thought it was Vangelis. I had to wait for the credits to see if it was. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. It's the synth score, the detective story, the moral ambiguity, the way that we come to understand the killer and the hunter are not that different. The obsession with eyes. There is so much Blade Runner here. A person jumping through plate glass. Yeah. 
it's stylized in much the same way and aloof in much the same way. They feel like the same movie, although they are obviously set in different places and have different thematic concerns. They do feel of a whole. I like Decker a hell of a lot more than I like Graham. And I think it's, again, Harrison Ford versus William Peterson. Harrison Ford is able to sell you and make this kind of ambiguity intriguing. Peterson makes it just kind of tiresome. And I don't think it helps that all of that talking into a tape is just so high school drama class. <laughs> He's not very good at some of those line deliveries, and maybe it's difficult to say those things out loud. But they do a lot of things with glass, as we've mentioned, and reflection. And it's part of the theme that when he's talking to the killer through the window, is he really seeing out or is he seeing his own reflection in? But some of the worst stuff here is where he's got to like have monologues with himself. There's a scene where he's in an airport and he's looking out the window and he says, it's just you and me, sport. And the waitress thinks she's talking to him and... It just, some of that felt really ripe (laughs) and kind of ridiculous. And I don't know, a better actor might be able to make me believe those moments. But Peterson is so aloof and so stoic that I have to side with Arnie on this one. He's the wrong choice for this movie. They make it work because this movie is aloof. But I feel like a better actor would make this a better movie for sure. And I'll go one step further and say, when we get to Silence of the Lambs, I think one of the improvements on the formula of Red Dragon that they take is that they give us a much more warm central character. I guess I'm standing alone that I was fine with Peterson's performance in this film. One of the big themes of this film is dreaming. And so I like that he was aloof. Part of my problems with this film is when we get about an hour in and that focus is taken away from Will Graham and goes to Dollarhide. I start losing interest in this film. And maybe it's a lot of the stylistic choices that Michael Mann used, the way he frames things, uses color. Maybe that was in the back of my head, holding my interest with a lot of Peterson's performances. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the monologue and the CSI talking through the crime. You know, yes, Arnie, it is high school drama talking it out loud like that. But it held my interest. I was liking that. And when this film moves away from him, I start losing interest. Maybe not because it's him. Maybe it's because it's another fault in the film. We'll get into that later. But I enjoyed when he was on the screen. I didn't have a problem with him because of the themes of the film being about dreams and seeing and the way he talks and he's aloof. I just felt it fit that role. Part of Graham's methodology, one of the cool images, I think, is that once he's getting into the mind and seeing what the killer sees, he imagines the Leeds woman in bed with the mirrors in her eyes. Arnie, you have an eye thing. How is that for you? It didn't bother me. We didn't see it going in the eyes, you know? Oh, okay. I was having a little Bonnie Tyler Total Eclipse of the Heart going on, which scared me as a child. I was mildly traumatized by this moment. No, didn't bother me in the least. And he really does learn most of that stuff from, like, dreaming and just creating a character in his head. I mean, there's things like he's holding women's panties and being like, ooh, you like to touch her, didn't ya? I mean, like, some might be inclined to say you're projecting a little bit of yourself in that. and But that's the point. It's almost like it's a psychic link, right? I mean, did you guys get that impression that he's not doing too much sleuthing, really? It's a lot of guesswork. No, I didn't get a psychic link. Are you going back to the psychic sharks from Jaws? <laughs> Revenge or whatever Jaws film that was? No. It was just, he was talking through it, trying to get into that mind frame how would someone that has these ritualistic killings what's going on in their head and as we find out 
with Will Graham throughout this film is that that's what he was known for. And he got into their heads too much. So when you're saying he's projecting, you're right, because he ended up in a psychiatric ward because he got into that mindset too much. And he got into that ward because he melded minds with our central star here. I'll go ahead and unveil him. Hannibal Lecter version 1.0. Brian Cox. (laughs) What'd you guys think? William Stryker before he gained some weight. Oh, that's true. I had forgotten about that. It is William Stryker. X-Men. He came off as kind of drunk to me, the way he (laughs) delivered his lines. Like Maybe because I'm used to Anthony Hopkins in this role, and it's impossible to watch this film after having seen Silence of the Lambs and coming in with a fresh perspective. I thought he was fine. It's a slightly different take, but I still found him menacing. I still like the way he played with Graham throughout the film and taunted him. Can I get your home phone number? I thought he still did it well. He just plays it slightly different. I say... If Brian Cox had been in Silence of the Lambs, we would not be doing this retrospective today. There would have been no sequels. (laughs) I'm not saying the man is bad, but when you walk away from Manhunter, you're not thinking about Lecter unless you're like, why'd they have all that stuff with that guy in that jail cell? (laughs) Because he doesn't seem very well integrated into this plot. They set him up for some things that never pay off. We really forget about him the second hour. And Cox's delivery, again, while fine, he didn't have a whole lot to play off of with Will Peterson being his sole acting partner, but there's just nothing here that oozes menace or evil the way Anthony Hopkins did. Cox is reading lines. I don't think he made the character his own. Well, in defense of Brian Cox, I think he did exactly what Michael Mann was asking for. I think that he, like all the characters here, are really dialing it down. And that this movie is, by design, slow and not playing towards evil. I mean, the expression of evil is not a bearing of fangs, but sort of an impassive stare, a void, if you will. And I feel like... That's what Brian Cox is doing here. We don't know exactly what's going on. We know that he's smart, and you're right, in little bit of details, we can see him trying to manipulate. But I think that if he was working on Silence of the Lambs and in a different director, maybe he would go for what Hopkins did. I don't know that Anthony Hopkins would work any better in this world than Brian Cox would in the next movie. So I'm not going to put any of it on Brian Cox, but... I'm also going to agree with you, Arnie. His arc is not here. And having read the novel, it literally is not here. (laughs) There is part of what he accomplishes that is not in the story at all. And it's shocking to me that they did not include it because it makes a pivotal moment have no payoff. The biggest evilest thing that Hannibal Lecter does in Manhunter is that he gleans out... Will Graham's home address and leaks it to the killer, urging him, the quote is, save yourself, kill them all. He wants revenge for being put away by Graham, and he's going to manipulate this new serial killer to do it. In the book, this actually comes to pass. There is a payoff for Tooth Fairy getting this address, and he makes somewhat good on what Lecter sets up. I think we need that. I think we need to see Lecter go beyond the cage. Here, he's just too caged. He never gets away. And I understand it's not the story about his escape. He can't escape in every movie. (laughs) But we need to feel that he can get you even when you're not 
sitting across the bars from him. We need to believe that. Stuart, I wonder if you're just projecting too much because of what Hannibal becomes later on. Or maybe you got this all in the book. For me, this doesn't seem like a Lecter film, and they don't play it up that way, as you just pointed out. I was really confused with giving out Graham's address because that storyline literally does not pay off. You know, we talk about Shekhov's gun all the time in these reviews, and nothing happens there. What I'm wondering for you guys is, it seems like they keep building up to this Lecter Graham face off early on, but we don't get any backstory. And I know when we get into Red Dragon, they address that more, you know, in the forefront. I felt it was really weird. Again, trying to watch this with a fresh pair of eyes. I thought the way they fit Lecter into this film just seemed really awkward. He just kind of pops up out of nowhere. Honestly, when I saw this in 91 and now I got to wonder why he's in this film. Because I do remember from reading Red Dragon back then that so much was missing of him that why did we need him in there other than to just have a reason why Graham was damaged? It just doesn't seem like that conversation added much. I suppose maybe the character depth. I mean, the two things is he serves a functional purpose to the plot by giving the Tooth Fairy Graham's home address and he serves one character moment by basically saying to graham that he's as evil as lecter is and you want the scent smell yourself but that's it and it seems like there could have been ways to do that that didn't involve going to was that the guggenheim that they went to for that <laughs> they did shoot this in the Atlanta Art Museum, this mental ward prison that uh, Hannibal Lecter is staying in, the all-white, very deco, spiraling, whatever. Whatever this building is, it's actually, you can go to it in Atlanta. It's an art museum. Okay, I just it reminded me of the Guggenheim from New York, but everything there was so white, too. It was just, the stylist choices man-made were unsubtle and... To the point of annoying me. I think that things like that should not... Bag it was the 80s. See, I like the stylistic choices in this film. I like the way the confrontation between Graham and Lecter, the way it's just framed. Again, maybe not the most subtle thing, but the way Graham's face is framed between the bars and then there's scenes where it's showing Lecter but his face is obscured by the bars I love that scene when Graham's running down the stairs that spot it's just I think this is a good looking film I like the way it looks I like the color choices the stylistic choices and at least for the first half of the film I like the musical choices that's keeping me involved in this it feels very dreamlike to me you know when you get this Lecter Graham face off they have this weird like Muzak playing and it feels like this weird i don't know plastic mall heaven that they're in with these psychotic killers it just seems so otherworldly for a cop film or an fbi thriller i like that it kept me involved i totally agree with you this is the first collaboration that michael mann had with the cinematographer dante spinati and they've done some very successful pictures together mohicans heat insider public enemies all of his big films were shot with dante and dante also shot LA Confidential. This stuff always looks good. And yes, the careful compositions here create 
the mood. And the mood is everything in Manhunter. I feel like there's large parts of the plot, particularly having now read the novel, that are ignored and not here. And I agree with you guys. Lecter is almost a cameo, whereas he feels like a major force in every other movie we're probably going to cover here. And just asking about the novel, Stuart, is it more than a cameo in the novel? There aren't too many more scenes. His influence is much more pervasive to the story. There are two major ways in which we see Lecter's evil manifest itself that are missing here, and I think the movie suffers for it. One of which is a second ending that they just did not shoot, where they make good on the address being leaked. But more centrally, this is supposed to be the story about how Graham becomes more like Lecter and more like Dollarhide, right? He's supposed to become more and more malicious the more and more he thinks like a killer. They fudge on that in this movie. In this movie, we have a character named Freddie Lowndes, the tabloid guy. And he inserts himself in there. He reports on Hannibal and Graham are meeting together. And they, in the movie, fabricate a story that is meant to bait the Tooth Fairy and make the Tooth Fairy go after Graham. In the book, this is a very important distinction, Graham make sure that Freddy gets photographed so that the Tooth Fairy goes after him. And so the Lecter actually compliments him on manipulating the serial killer to take out one of his enemies. Wow, that, yeah, that, that that's huge. He does what Lecter does later. They both manipulate this Tooth Fairy killer to take out their enemies. That's a huge difference. It really takes Graham's character in a different direction. I guess I could see why they didn't want to go there, but I wish they would have. We're already having problems liking William Peterson here. Would we be able to go with a guy who had literally set up even a sleazy tabloid guy to be killed? Well, if it fits thematically, yeah. If that's the theme in this film is that that's Graham's problem is that he gets too much into the mind of the killer and starts thinking like them and carrying out their actions, then yeah. You know, I don't need a rah-rah good cop to cheer on. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I could take a more ambiguous view of a film and a protagonist and go where he naturally progresses, organically goes. I don't mind that. Well, I'll be interested to see if Red Dragon, the fourth movie we're going to be covering here, but the same story, goes there. But in 1986, we didn't have anti-heroes like that. The cop was always the good guy. And, you know, John Johnson, he was the good guy on Miami Vice. There was a little bit of moral ambiguity, but I just don't think we were prepared for, I don't know, cops that kill tabloid journalist or enable that to happen you got to admit though guys freddy is one badass photographer right i mean he's gonna kick your ass don't you agree did you recognize him no actually i imdb'd him and then i was like wow that's him I know, he's unrecognizable i couldn't believe that it's the bad guy from avatar yeah he has been pumped up what <laughs> i know jacob what can you believe it? Yeah, the old, like, general guy. The scarred-up general? Yes. Yeah. What? For real. <laughs> wow. What's wow. happened in the time? I don't know. Someone's aged gracefully for one. Yeah, I agree. In shape? Yeah. They're working out, that's for sure. Either that or hiding all that muscle underneath that blazer. I do have to say, though, while I didn't like Peterson, the actor... 
The character as portrayed here, I did like, I really liked his ingenuity and the scene where Lecter has the toilet paper note and they have three hours to do all the analysis and he's the one leading the charge on that. I thought that was a really well done scene, even though it had Chris Elliott as a forensic specialist. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't know he was that old. That <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. And one of the guys from Frasier, too, Bulldog, is there as well, <laughs> figuring it out. All the later sitcom people started out as movie forensic specialists, I guess. This is how Chris Elliott learned to track down Mary. It's a great sequence. I agree with you. It's one of the few times where I feel like the movie is intentionally building suspense as opposed to just creating an ominous mood. There's an ominous cloud that hangs over almost every scene, but here I actually feel engaged in a way that I don't in a lot of the movies. And it's because, yeah, they're racing against the clock. They've only got a few hours as opposed to the fact that the next family is not going to be killed for three more weeks, you know, until the next full moon. They got some time there, but here they got another hour before Lecter's going to suspect that they found his correspondence with Tooth Fairy. And so they got to do a whole lot of tests fast. And it's cool to see these processes. Plus, the person they're trying to do this against is Lecter, who I'm projecting because of the other films, but... We know he's really smart. You can't put one over on him. So the longer they take, and I like that scene where the guy's looking at the Sharpie and he's like, you're smart, but I'm smarter. And he shows how you can see through a Sharpie, but not ballpoint ink using infrared light. That sequence Mm -hmm. is perhaps my second favorite Graham sequence in the entire movie. I agree. It's a good one. But Jacob, you said you didn't really like it when about an hour in the movie shifts its focus to Francis Dollarhide, a.k.a. the Tooth Fairy. This is what I liked the movie, Jake. <laughs> well, perhaps you sympathize with serial killers more than I do. That's why you're on all these horror retrospectives. <laughs> Let me say, though, he is a sympathetic serial killer. I'm looking at this, and you know what I kept getting flashbacks to was Phantom of the Opera. And even... Graham sympathizes with him and pities him and says that he was made into the serial killer because he was deformed as a child, he was rejected, he was not loved, and it is rejection from society that has turned him into this. I mean, it's basically the 80s adult version of Columbine, right? There is sympathy for the devil in this movie. Well, before I get the sympathy, I get the willies. I think Tom Noonan just looks like a very creepy man here, and I find him unsettling. His whole line delivery, I feel like the other two are a little too stoic for me. Here, his playing it down actually really works. I believe this guy is highly abnormal and dangerous from the moment we get that shot of him in the house with the pantyhose over his face, and he says, here I am. I'm creeped out. I Congrats, Tom Noonan. You are the scariest thing in Manhunter. And I love Tom Noonan in a lot of stuff. He was great as the killer in The Last Action Hero. He was great as Kane in Robocop 2, a film that I like despite everybody else seeming to hate it and he was okay in the monster squad so yeah i think he's just an all-around good actor i enjoy him 
all parts he got because he was so fucking scary <laughs> in this movie. I agree that he's creepy looking. It just seems like, is that why he was a serial killer? Because he had a cleft lip or something? So people laughed at him in elementary school? Like, that That just seems so cliche. And for this movie where it's kind of on the cutting edge of forensic and profiling serial killers, that just seems such a step back. Now, maybe that was a new thing back in 86. Maybe it's just because I've seen so many films, but it just didn't do it for me. Actually, I wouldn't say it was new. What I kept getting flashbacks to was the original novel, not the musical, but the original Gaston Leroux novel, Phantom of the Opera, where basically this guy is the phantom, right? He's rejected by women, wants the love of a woman, hides behind a mask and kills people exerting power where he can't find love. I really think you're getting ahead, though. That's not how we first experience him. It may be how we get there after we see him softening, but when he's got the journalist, you know, tied to the wheelchair and he's about to bite his lips off and do you see, I don't see the Phantom here. I've just seen an hour of dead (laughs) children and parents lying around their bedrooms and I think I'm looking at the devil i admittedly so and it's a great introduction the pantyhose is great i love the flaming wheelchair that said one of the ways that they get the tooth fairy is by calling him gay they realize that he's molesting these women and putting mirrors in their eyes so he can see what he projects desire for him again he wants the women we find this out in the first hour and so the best way to get after him is to call him gay and say he had sexual relations with his mother. And that pisses him off to the point that he kidnaps the journalist. And how dare you call me gay? I'm going to kiss you. What? This is 86. I mean, it's a lot different than I was able to go along with this. This guy is the prototype for Internet trolls where they get online and they're all powerful and all consuming. And then they're socially awkward in real life that's why he goes and kills these families and sets them up as he performs these acts on these dead bodies so he has this audience he puts the glass in their eyes so he could see himself and he's becoming powerful he's becoming god so yeah this guy has no sense of reality i mean i thought it made sense to call him out on his sexuality say oh he's this you know inbred redneck that had relations with his mother This image that he has in his head, the red dragon, that goes against that image, and that's going to get him fired up. I thought it worked. I get that. I'm specifically asking why he kisses the reporter. Well, before I answer that, I will say they're doing anything to get a rise out of him. At that point, what else can they say that will guarantee that it'll make them go after Graham? That's their intent in this movie. Now, in the book, this plays very different. In the book... Dr. Bloom, one of the psychiatrists working on the team, actually thinks there are homosexual tendencies and all of this stuff that they talk about is stuff that they actually think might be until they get some more forensic work done and find out that the bites have no suck on them and that it's in sexual attacks. They tend to suck as they bite their victim and that's not the case. It plays in a different part. And the reason why it plays a different part is because this character is entirely different than what you will find in Thomas Harris's novel. And Michael Mann will be the first to tell you that. Now, you can go over to Books and Nachos. I'm give you the entire backstory there about who Francis Dollarhide is, according to Thomas Harris. But according to Michael Mann in Manhunter, he is based on a man that Michael Mann met while he was doing prison research for a TV movie in the late 70s. 
and his name was Dennis Wayne Wallace, paranoid schizophrenic who was obsessed with Indagata DeVita and a surfer chick and collected a lot of old radios and believed in frequencies and that there was these things controlling him. He had this correspondence talk with him, had all of the psychological profiles. So he said, I am going to make this the killer and I'm going to throw out what the book did. And so a lot of what they've kept about the book and the setup does not pay out in the second half of this movie. And I think the movie suffers for it if you're looking to piece it together. For those of us that are trying to slew things together and find answers, I feel like a lot of them aren't here in the Michael Mann vision. The Dollarhide stuff, all that buildup is great, and then we get to them, and I feel it's a letdown. There's not the payoff I was expecting after seeing all these grisly murders and what he was doing. I don't know. It just goes off in a weird direction at the beginning of the second hour. And I love it. Okay, you love it. I don't. I love the fact that he's not a monster. We get to see him in his everyday life outside of killing. We see him performing his job. I mean, you think about the actual serial killers, the Ted Bundys of the world, and they aren't living like total freaks. They're going to jobs. They're the guy next door. And I like that this guy is socially awkward, but yet he's holding down a job. And it's a technical job, you know? He's a film geek. I don't mind that. What bothers me is the actor, the way he plays it, I just don't believe he's smart enough to get away with these murders and confound the FBI after two, you know, mass murders. You don't think he's smart? I just don't think this person's smart enough to do that. No, he's crazy. He's unbalanced. I don't think he's smart enough to do it, though. He comes across as very smart to me. He comes across as, yes, crazy and imbalanced, but there's a brain there. The fact that this guy is, like, the most experienced film guy on the team, he's a total film nerd. And in the 80s, that would be something to be seen as a bad thing. But I like the fact that we are kept distant from the cop, but yet asked to empathize with the killer. I found that to be a great choice. Maybe we should ask him to host now playing. He's not a film geek. I just wanted to say right now he is not really up on Citizen Kane and all of that. <laughs> I mean actual film. I mean yes. stock film. You can get those gamma <laughs> levels right. Yes. Yeah, he is a developer of film because film in this movie is creating the dream. Everything is about creating the fantasy here. And they do a lot with film and I think there's some great stuff here. I like this character. I like the character that Thomas Harris created. I am sad that not all of it ended up here on the screen and I do feel like by man going his own way if you're going to totally change who the killer is, I feel like you need to change some of the way they discover him. I just don't feel like it all adds up anymore the way that it so satisfyingly does in the novel. And I also want to say we get to him pretty late. He doesn't show up in the movie until the first hour, and we don't see him starting to have romantic feelings and seeing him on the job until 90 minutes into the movie. In the book, as soon as we meet Lecter, we're pretty much learning about Dollar Hyde. But here, it's because they choose not to show him until Freddy has seen him and been kidnapped, I feel like it's been too long. It's harder to have the feelings you're talking about, Arnie, because we've spent so much time with the other guy. I agree completely. I would have liked to have been with this character when he's writing on the toilet paper. I would have liked to have been with this character when he's getting the personals message that gives him Graham's address. I would have liked to have 
had more of this character. And admittedly, it would kill the one scene of Graham running and seeing this jogger and wondering if it's the killer. But that's the only thing we'd lose by that. Unfortunately, though, up until this point, while there's some actors I like, I like Dennis Farina from other stuff, and I like Chris Elliott from other stuff. There's no characters in here I like until I start seeing Dollar Hyde and his little chippy. I think Dollar Hyde is the most fascinating character in the movie. I do feel like he dominates the movie once he appears. But like I said, as someone that just read the novel, it was hard this viewing to separate what I knew to be on the page not being up on the screen. It was really difficult. It hurt my feelings. I know they always say that, you know, the book's better than the movie, but here it really was really like, oh, I just can't believe you threw all of that out just because you knew a guy in prison that was kind of wacky. Here they have it more like, I guess the original killer they modeled him on was really into electricity and to radios and so that's why he's all into the space stuff here. You know, we get to his house this is not a killer's house as we would think of it. Certainly not the oh, killer's house. Oh, I love house. his house in this film. I would live in it. <laughs> I mean, yes. I wouldn't live in Buffalo Bill's house, okay, in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I would not have a pit in my basement and moths everywhere. But this is pretty fucking cool with the Sputnik lamps and all the moon posters and all of that. I didn't even notice. I thought it was because, again, he was into photography and things that he just developed some stuff for himself. I didn't realize the space theme. Oh, it's totally 50s space theme. I mean, yeah, he's got moons everywhere. Yeah, again, for someone that's ascending to a god, you'd want this otherworldly thing. Again, going back to the visuals of this film, that's what's really grabbing me when he's standing there and he's got this mural of a moonscape behind him. It's a stunning thing to look at. It is. Very striking. They do some really cool stuff with pictures. The landscapes are always big in this movie. We're always aware when we're on the beach and, and what have you and they've sort of established this blue beach as where Will would rather want to be. When he finds out that Lecter has leaked his home address to Tooth Fairy he's in an office, a very sterile waiting room, but right behind him there's a picture of a beach with an overturned boat and it mirrors the way that this guy would rather be ascended to the moon you know, getting his messages from the moon and he makes all the kills on the full moon. When they use those photographs in here they're showing you internal thoughts there's a lot of cool compositions here and the way they're using that film I totally dig it and I totally love this house but it doesn't feel like the creepy house you know what i mean it doesn't feel like the kind of killer i thought we were going to get and not the killer that was written maybe a big part of that is because what he is transforming into is red dragon but does anyone understand what red dragon is i'm really curious what does it mean to you when you watch manhunter what he's becoming they talked about a chinese symbol so I took it to be some Chinese mythological creature. Again, I can't remember. I read the book over 20 years ago. No, I would rather you not remember the book and tell me what does it mean to not know what goes on in the book because I can't believe none of it is there. Yeah, it just seems like this mystical, mythical, ancient god out of some country's mythology. They show some pictures, they reference it. That's how I took it, is that it was just this way to ascend to godhood, that it was some symbol for godhood. Okay, well, I will do no spoilers because, again, we are seeing this movie again and in a couple more episodes. We'll get to Red Dragon, and I know that they deal with this in Red Dragon, so I won't talk about it, but I really feel like... Red Dragon, 
I'm glad this movie didn't get called that because it's not about the Red Dragon. It is about the Manhunter. Michael Mann doesn't like this title. And in fact, it was only changed because Dino De Laurentiis made Manhunter and he had just bombed out with another detective story called Year of the Dragon. And he didn't want another movie with dragon in it associated with his name because this one might bomb too. Well, guess what? You change the name, it's still bomb. (laughs) But... This movie is about the Manhunter, and I think it's absolutely correctly titled. This movie is not about Red Dragon. The story about Red Dragon will be told in Brett Ratner's film a few episodes from now. I didn't mind the introduction of Dollar Hyde. When it really slowed down for me was the introduction of Reba. The love interest for Dollar Hyde? <laughs> the blind love interest and the tiger scene? Like, this is where I start getting confused and start looking at my watch. And this is exactly where I am engaged and loving every minute of it after looking at my watch for an hour. I can't believe it. First of all, can I just compliment Joan Allen? We have seen some really bad blind people lately. Daredevil, <laughs> Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, hell, even the other Fantastic Four. Not a lot of great blind people. I totally buy Joan Allen in this part. I think she's usually a very good actress anyway. I think she's great in this movie. So give it up for the blind lady. Absolutely. There's a couple times she makes eye contact, but by and large, she does pretty well. And I liked her in this. And yeah, after the first few minutes, I buy her as blind. I don't know how many blind people work in photography, but... But it makes sense. Dark room. They call it out here. It's a, what, a government program? They got to have that affirmative action? No, she's working in total darkness. I mean, it totally makes sense. She's not going to be weirded out. I mean, obviously, she's not looking at the negatives. I get that. (laughs) But no, she's the person he goes to when he needs the special high-speed film that's going to allow him to tape the next family he's going to murder in complete darkness. That's why they even meet, is he thinking about the Shermans and all of a sudden here's this woman who is you know kind of looks like the woman in the painting he's modeling himself on and she's not telling him no she can't see his defects in the book he comes across as more deformed or at least his self-image is such that he is monstrous to himself I don't think Tom Noonan other than looking you know tall and lanky and having a hair look looks nearly as upsetting as you would think the character would from reading the book yeah i mean he's just got a very minor scar on his lip so they play it up through dialogue that isn't really played up visually and maybe that's the point maybe the point is because a lot of what we learn about dollar hyde is from his perspective he thinks of himself as more monstrous than he really is but he's also a bigger guy i mean he's a bodybuilder in the book and he's physically imposing than tom noonan looks in this movie But that said, the romance stuff is, I think, great in the novel. And my only complaint about is the way it plays here is it's coming awfully late and it feels very rushed once we finally get here. I mean, all of this courtship stuff and the tiger, I think the tiger scene is wonderful. I think it's a great metaphor for what she's doing and cuddling up with the monster, but does feel kind of random, right? In the way that it comes so late in the picture. By this time in the movie, I want to see what Dollar Hyde's doing to get ready to kill this third family. And this just goes off in a way different direction that I'm waiting for the payoff and it doesn't really seem like there is a payoff except they don't have to worry about that third family at the end. It just seems like a way to cheat the ending and have this shootout instead of going to where this movie should have gone. But you see, 
This is why I like this section. It's because Graham is a very flat character. He's out to get his man. There's nothing to him. Here, with Dollarhide, we have a character who is changing and evolving from minute to minute in this. He's trying to evolve into the Red Dragon, but the whole reason he's trying to be the Red Dragon, the whole reason he's killing people, is because it's not that he wants to be God. You said that earlier, Jacob. But that's not what they're saying. What Lecter was saying is, if you kill because God kills, you think you become God. But what Dollarhide is doing is putting the mirrors in their eyes because that way he thinks he's desired. And if he can make himself desired enough times, then he will be desirable. And so his whole reason for killing is he wants a girlfriend. That is it. And so he is trying to transform into the Red Dragon, thinking the Red Dragon will get the girl. And here... He starts to get the girl. And so we see a character who thought he was becoming the Red Dragon, who may be ready to put the whole Red Dragon shit aside because he got laid. Well, Arnie, if you thought you were hideous and ugly, would dating a blind chick give you better self-esteem? Like, isn't that giving in to admitting that you're hideous and you could only get with the blind chick? I feel that way about Bren Grimm the Thing, too. You know, it's like... (laughs) (laughs) It is a similar story, isn't it? (laughs) Except for the sex and watching the snuff film. I'd rather do that, though, than the blowing and the modeling clay sex scene we get in Fantastic Four. Now, come that's, to think of it. that's only in the director's cut. <laughs> I get what you're saying. I guess my problem is with where all this is happening 90 minutes into the film. I just felt it could have been paced out better. Yes, you're right there. It just seems to be too late that this film's gone in a totally different direction. I was watching one type of film, and now it's transforming into something else. Yes, you were watching a bad one, transforming into a good short. (laughs) I won't agree with that, but... (laughs) Oh, I think it's a little harsh. I'm going to offer a different take on it. If you look at this as a story of mirror images, we see Graham start off with his wife, And as he moves forward, he becomes more and more violent. Now, they took that away from him. Like I said, in the book, we see him do a ruthless move that gets someone killed semi-intentionally. Yeah, because there's a scene in this movie where, like, the boy's afraid to leave Graham with his wife, and it comes out of nowhere and makes no sense. But on the other hand here, we have an identical thing. A guy who we first meet is killing, and then as we get further and further away he's actually now softening and meeting another woman and i think a big theme here for man is if you isolate him and you take away his sexual outlet it turns into aggression and i feel like that's what's happening is that graham is getting further away from his wife and he's thinking about his wife and he's holding these dead women's clothes and it's giving him the insights to think like tooth fairy like red dragon and i'm wondering Can this blind woman actually prevent Red Dragon from fighting the Shermans? I mean, as we approach the climax, the full moon is coming. He's supposed to be striking them. And in the moment that I think that he's scoping out their house, it suddenly turns into a music video of him actually spying on this blind woman being brought home by her co-worker. And he becomes jealous. I talked about earlier how I like kind of the electronic music. Is this part of the mirroring? Because now Dollarhide, every scene he's in is like this bad 80s pop song. It's bad, but it's so good. I got to say, I love this song. This strong as I am. This is probably my favorite sequence in the whole movie. I know. I can't defend it, right? A bunch of Canadians singing this really ridiculous power ballad. But in this moment, the way 
man's put it together, I totally get into the headspace of all of our characters because, of course, at this point, they're all become criminally minded. Again, though, the whole jealousy thing for Dollarhide to turn on Reba, it just... I guess that's his character. It makes sense. It just wasn't satisfying for me that now he's going to start killing people around him and he's going to break his M.O. because he's jealous because another guy picked out the eyelash. It makes perfect sense to me because he's so insecure. He's seeing what he wants to see. Yes, and I like the way that we see that. I understand. It just seems so cliche at this point. And maybe because I've seen so many movies that had serial killers like this or read those kind of stories, it just seems really cliche to me at this point. You're talking about the subjective moment where he sees them kissing, but really the guy's just pulling something out of her hair and saying goodnight as a friend. A bug. Yeah, and just the jealousy over the girl and not being able to handle like, it. Uh, I've seen this before. I like this stuff, but again, I hate to be the one to do this. In the book, this is more of a battle. <laughs> Red Dragon is a different persona that he actually has a fight with. And Dollarhide has a dialogue about whether he can go off and be with Reba or whether he has to fulfill his duties to be Red Dragon. And it's just a much more interesting conflict. Again, I can't wait to see if they handle it more accurately in Brett Ratner's movie. And I would have found that more satisfying, seeing some kind of conflict between him pacifying himself, looking for love, or fulfilling this destiny that he set out for himself. That would have been more satisfying. I love it. I love that he's sitting there with the girl, watching the family he's going to kill. I mean, you say that, why can he only get with a blind chick? Well, a blind chick is perfect, because you could have blood dripping from your knives, and she'll never know. Again, if I thought he was that smart, I would go along with that. I just never bought him as being that smart, that clever. Did you think he was mentally impaired because of the way he talked? He kind of had that quality. Yeah, he just seemed kind of slow. Yeah, but he has a speech impediment is the thing. And I think that's more of why he talks that way. It makes you think that he's stupid, but he's not. And again, I'm in conflict because we can read his thoughts in the book and we know that he's not dumb. But you're right, when he's limited by what he can say and the fact that he avoids saying anything to anybody because he has this complex about his hair lip and his speech impediment, it just plays different here. And you're right, Arnie. I think you're onto something in the way that you say that now it feels like his transformation into Red Dragon is really a, a search for acceptance and love. That's what I'm getting at here. That when he finally says Francis isn't here anymore and he abducts this woman, that's his way of fully transforming. But in the novel, not so much. Red Dragon wants him to remain a bachelor and Dollarhide very much would like to stop what he's doing. And Stuart, when you're rolling your eyes when Graham is saying, just you and me now, sport, I'm rolling my eyes when he says, when Dollarhide's saying Francis isn't here anymore. Like, it's weird. I just have a totally opposite take during the second half than I guess <laughs> you do, Arnie, and somewhat with you, Stuart. But can we all be in agreement that I'll agree with you, Jacob, that when that supposed kiss happens, I think it comes about too quick. I think the transformation into I'm going to kidnap you and kill you now comes too quick. That said, when I said that Graham and the forensics bit was my second favorite scene, this climax is phenomenal. It's better than the rest of the movie we saw when she's in the house and he's blaring Inagata de Vida and just killing her of all her senses because all she can hear is the music. 
And meanwhile, Graham and the FBI agents, Chris Elliott, the rest of them have figured out it's the film reels being sent to the same processing plant in St. Louis. So they got to get to St. Louis and stop the killer because it's the full moon. It's just this entire scene is kinetic. This is where I got back into the movie when they start figuring out about the film reels and connecting it all. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Arnie. Now I'm back into this film. One of the big things that is different, it's considered a favorite moment to Manhunter fans. The difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut is that right as this sequence is about to start, Graham in the theatrical cut, believe it or not, not the director's cut, says something to the effect that he is so in tune with his subject that he's profiling that he actually feels bad for him, that he kind of sounds like you, Arnie, that he's looking at the wounded child side of it. He's looking at how he's hurt and feels pain for him, but at the same time has a dialectic thought about how much he wants to kill him and stop him for the monster that he's become as an adult. He can pity the child and murder the adult at the same time. But I imagine you didn't see that, Jacob, in your cut. No, I didn't. You see, and I did see that in mine, and it was one of my favorite Will Graham scenes, too, is where he's there, and Dennis Farina is like, it seems like you sympathize with him. And he's talking about how, yeah, the child was manufactured into the monster. Yeah, they definitely want to play up the moral ambiguity of the situation. And I don't know why man would want to remove that from a director's cut. I feel like that's what his movie's about. But for whatever reason, he took that scene out... And he put in a really bad scene early on with Graham on the phone talking with his wife about what color to paint the kitchen. I'm like, this is not the scene you add. This is not giving you anything. So that's not in the theatrical cut, that scene? It's not in the theatrical cut. The wife scenes are all extended in the director's cut. I think it just wanted to keep playing up the fact that Graham and his wife are have this really strange <laughs> back and forth. I kind of enjoyed that scene. It seemed kind of out of place, but it made sense. Again, looking at this film stylistically, to be able to express how the relationship is breaking apart while talking about color. I don't know. I like that. I kind of enjoyed that scene. Just don't paint that kitchen blue because everything else in this damn house of yours is blue. I mean, every time we cut to her, she's in a blue room. I'm like, don't paint it blue. I think the, my problem is I don't think those scenes are particularly well acted. And I put more of that on Peterson than I do on Greased. I think that he's so one note, he's not able to show us the family man and the human softer side of him. Dollarhide, I get that sense. I get that moment that after sex, when he puts her hand over his mouth and starts crying, I believe that moment. But when Graham is on the phone talking about who cares what we paint the fucking kitchen, I felt like it hit a false note. And I feel like it was right to come out. I feel like probably at the end of the day, the theatrical cut is a little bit stronger. Well, then I'm glad that's the one I watched. I don't know. Is it so controversial to say that you can empathize with a killer if that's your job? I mean, maybe for 1986, that was like, oh, my God, I can't relate to this guy anymore. But, I mean, now we have Dexter. <laughs> now every week we put ourselves <laughs> in the mind of the killer. And the only thing I can think of is that at the end of the day, when even as we identify with the killer, we do it by looking at their backstory and we look at how they get created. And here, by cutting out that backstory, it's all speculation. Graham never figures out what actually made Dollar Hyde turn into Red Dragon. It's never explained. Inferred, but never explained. I feel like that hurts the film. Maybe that's why I had such a strong negative reaction towards the beginning of the second half of this film, is I don't need everything spelled out, but I would have liked 
something. I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot you could project a lot, just like Graham does in this film when he's investigating the crime scenes. I would have liked something deeper there with Dollarhide. There's a way of doing it, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. Silence of the Lambs knows how to do it. They leave a lot to inference, but still tell you everything you need to know. And here, I really feel like because they're battling two entirely different conceptions about who this killer is, they can't imply a singular backstory. It doesn't make sense why he's biting and obsessed with the moon and trying to turn into the Red Dragon, which is based on a William Blake painting, which they very briefly show here. I mean, all these things don't mesh into one cohesive, I get it kind of portrait here. And I think that's what we're owed when we look at a serial killer. I think that's what we expect. We don't need to have everything spelled out, but I think that we want to see the profile if it's a story about a criminal profiler. Yeah, I'm going to say, I mean, this happened in so many of the movies review. Great first act, second act, and when you finally get to those reveals, you're left wanting. You know, why is he obsessed with the Red Dragon? It doesn't really pay off here. And I guess maybe that's what's hurting me, the Dollar Hyde character so much for me, is that there isn't that payoff. And I'll talk about it when I get to Silence. I think there's some problems as well with that film when you get to that third act and it becomes a shoot 'em up instead of this psychological thriller that we've had for the first two acts. But it is the full moon, and he is not at the Shermans. He has remained focused on Reba. And so I guess... To some effect, she has influenced who he's become, and he's changing his M.O. Before he would kill the women, shoot them, or, you know, slash a throat, and then break the mirror shards and do what he needs to to get the acceptance. But here, he's actually breaking his mirror before she's dead. Maybe because he needs them to see him kill them. And she can't see anyway, so she needs the mirrors first. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all, uh, maybe. Who knows? Now, did you understand how Graham figured out that it all came from the same place, the film lab? That I, was crystal clear in the theatrical cut. There was no question about it. He talks about it at length. He says it three times. You knew you needed bolt cutters, but the bolt was removed. He just keeps saying the fucking thing. Yes, it was clear. <laughs> okay, I, was, I just want to make sure. <laughs> I would have liked more goddamn ambiguity. Because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of things that aren't clear, but this is an important one. Again, everything, as I said, is hinged on the fact that home movies were shot on 8mm, processed all in St. Louis, no matter where they were in the country. Even if you shot it in Birmingham or you shot it in Atlanta, they'd mail it to the same lab, and then they'd mail it back to you. And the only difference is... In 1981, when the novel came out, all they had was the film, and here they have the second layer of it having been transferred by somebody to VHS. Half-inch VHS tape. Yes. <laughs> Get it right. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Even though it's highly impractical, even though he said he wouldn't go this far, even though there's tons of SWAT teams between Chicago and the St. Louis hideout, it in the day has to be one guy against one guy, and Graham has to be the one to get to the house. Now, I like it, and I both think it's ridiculous that this is our climax. I mean, it's both at the same time, right? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'll agree with you there. I did not like how this was filmed. Knowing that this is the guy who did Miami Vice and Heat, I was rolling my eyes during this final shootout. It was not good. I loved it. I was so into it. The Inagata de Vida, one of my favorite songs. I discovered it thanks to Freddy's Dead. And <laughs> just the music and the way it builds to the crescendo and Dollar Hyde's about to kill Reba. 
And just as music hits the crescendo, Graham comes through the glass. You guys have been talking this whole podcast about the style. I love the style. I love the slow-mo. I love the breaking of the glass. I love the music. Arnie, I'm with you up to this point. It's once he goes through that glass and the cops charge in and you get like dollar high, like three different angles of him shooting the same guy. That's when I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, there's a lot of jump cutting. All of a sudden, they go for something very stylistically different. I mean, when you have a lot of jump cuts in something, you think of something fast-paced and exciting and disorienting. And up to this point, this movie has been languid, slow, some might even say dull. So all of a sudden to have all of this cutting and everything, it didn't feel entirely right. I liked the way that it was filmed. I didn't particularly like the way it was edited. Yeah, when Graham is shooting Dollar Hyde, it has some weird jump cuts that almost made me think the squibs didn't fire right, so they had to remove some frames. Maybe that is what they were doing. They claim it's just stylistic. I actually believe it's stylistic because they could always reshoot, but it didn't feel stylistic in a way that was natural to the film it was a stylistic in a way that took me out rather than a way that drew me in but the shootout itself is very short it's all build up and will graham get there in time once graham gets there it's over pretty damn quick this is michael mann all over i feel like he could make a three-hour movie and two hours and 55 minutes of it would be just two tough dudes staring each other down and the last five minutes would be the actual fight i mean he's all about the stare down it's the showdown it's before you pull draw and fire the pistol that's the kind of stuff he likes to prolong and this has been one very long prolonged stare down for a quite brief brief face-off. Too short? Maybe. No, no, I'm glad it's short. Maybe it's because I'm into samurai films, and samurai films are all about the build-up, and the actual fights are very quick. A couple slashes, and one of the people are dead. I like the build-up, and I'm especially with the way this shootout was shot, I'm glad it was quick. This isn't an action film. I don't need that action going on. I know that Dollar Hyde is going to die. That's my expectation going into this scene. I don't need that drawn out. Did you think Graham would die too? No. I thought there was so much similarity between them that I just felt like it was a possibility. But, uh, you know, then when I read the book. Maybe this film today, but not in 1986. Yeah, good point. And I guess we want him to get home. I mean, I don't love Graham, but I certainly wouldn't want to see his kid orphaned. I mean, it's satisfying that he's able to stop the evil. He saves Reba, and there feels like there's a weird transformation there. Dollar Hyde lying on the ground in that puddle, it spreads out. It looks like dragon wings. It looks like the dragon in the photo. I think that's intentional. So maybe everyone got what they wanted. Maybe it's a happy ending. I don't think Dollar Hyde ever wanted to die. <laughs> he wanted out of his pain, and he certainly was relieved of that. That said, there is another ending that needs to happen right after this, and it kills me that it's not here, because it would bring back the whole reason we're doing this podcast, and that's Lecter, is that Lecter has dropped out of this picture at this point. We don't even get a phone call at the end. He's gone. And I feel like at a climax, without Lecter... This movie doesn't know what it's doing anymore. They forgot that this is a three-way battle, and they forgot what they had. They underestimated Hannibal Lecter, and this is Michael Mann's decision. He fully admits in the commentary that there was pressure for him to do more with Lecter, and he said, no, I want to leave them wanting, and... He certainly did. I wanted more Lecter. The only Lecter, really, we ever get, the only time we ever understand about Lecter 
is the scene in the supermarket with Will and his kid, and he tells him what happened and how he found out, and that Lecter was into co-eds? I had no idea of that. <laughs> but that's really the most we get out of Lecter and what he does, and I just think, Michael Mann treated us like a 10-year-old. I wanted more Lecter here, and so without an ending that brings back some of the payoff of what he did to Graham, it's incomplete. So I can't say I love this climax. I kind of like what they're doing here with Indigata de Vida and some of it's very stylish, but I feel like the ending of this movie is wanting. And are you saying that, Stuart, because you read the book or because you know of the other films? Because I try to approach this not thinking of Silence of the Lambs, which it's hard to do. But are you saying there's more in the book? There's a resolution with Lecter? I will say no more until we get to Red Dragon. Here's what I will say. I know about this double ending Stuart's talking about having read Red Dragon back in the day, and this is one of the more memorable things. And there was actually a foreword in the edition I read that talked about the differences between that book and Manhunter. And what it said was, Killers coming back from the dead, spoiler alert, was very novel, no pun intended, when the book came out in 1981. But by the time the movie came out in 1986, it had been done again and again and again. And so it was cliched. As reviewed on earlier, now plain <laughs> Yes. And so that's why it was taken out here. Yes, it does provide a little bit of payoff for the whole address thing, but it's a fake-out return from the dead. I'll say this much. I feel like not having at least a phone conversation with Lecter, I don't get the sense that Will is able to leave the mind of the killer. They try to do something with turtle cages and he's with his family at the beach at the end and all of that. That's really what I'm looking for, is a last quid pro quo that to really send that message through. And it's not here. And consequently, yeah, if Silence of the Lambs had never been made, you would not even think about Lecter. He's so little here. Which is why I think he should have been cut from this film. Wow, that's bold. Well, in the film they made, they didn't need him. They should have spent more time on the killer they had and not the killer that didn't pay off. I will agree that the killer that they had, the red dragon you speak of, is more interesting than Lecter. And that should never be. Lecter should be always be the most fascinating monster on screen. But we only say that because we know Silence of the Lambs. Indeed. The scene after the shootout, I really liked where Graham goes and he checks on the family. That was supposed to be the third victims. Well, you're only seeing that if you see the director's cut. Oh, okay. Because I thought this was the scene that the movie should have ended on, where Graham approaches, knocks on the door. He's all beat up and cut up from this fight. And you have to almost wonder, is he going to kill them? Has he gone too far? Does he have that heart of darkness now? And he even uses the word, you know, I just stopped by to see you, which was, as Arnie said over and over, do you see that I was a big thing with the Tooth Fairy, with Dollar Hyde, the Red Dragon? All of them, yeah. I wish the film would have ended there on that scene where you don't know, has he gone too far? Is he going to finish what Dollar Hyde started? But you know what? I didn't even see that cut. But the movie I saw, I never once thought he'd become a killer. If so... That would have been the biggest mind fuck of an ending that would be completely unjustified in the history of cinema. Well, he is a killer. The whole time, that's his struggle. I mean, how can you say that? He is a killer, and there is someone dead at the end of it because of his bullets. But since it's the bad guy, we don't feel that way. I hear what you're saying, Arnie. But I don't know if any of you noticed it. It's just a snatch of dialogue. Lecter does mention that after Will caught him, there was also another serial killer that Will shot and murdered dobbs did that ring a bell did that stick with you at all 
the implication is that Will had to go kill somebody after he put the psychopath away. And if you know that, then you might be more inclined to think of what Jacob's thinking here and that this may even be a possibility. But you're right. It doesn't really play that way. And again, it's Peterson's performance. He looks the same to me when he's playing on the beach as he does when he's firing a gun. I feel like it's hard to know what's going on behind those eyes and that a better internal actor would have shown that to us. Maybe Edward Norton. We'll have to find out. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Manhunter? Jacob. I do recommend Manhunter. I was surprised (laughs) that I enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, one of the debates we're always having as we talk about films is style and visuals versus storytelling. And for me, it's always a combination. It's a sliding scale. If the visuals are strong enough in there and the style's there, the story can be a little bit weaker. So much of this film is about the style, and I was really taken in by it. Much like, you know, we talked about Blade Runner. It was weird how much this film reminded me of Blade Runner with the musical choices, except the weird 80s pop towards the end of the film. The color schemes, uh, just some striking moments with Graham with the huge map of the city in black and white behind him. The scenes where he's with Lecter, it's not as much of the dialogue that sticks with me, but the look of this film. It really struck me. I liked the themes. I liked Graham's struggle of getting too much into the mind of the serial killer. It's not a perfect film. It's unbalanced. We had some disagreements where this was unbalanced. For me, there's about 30 minutes towards the second half where I kind of lose interest, but I enjoyed this film. It kept my attention. It's more of a cerebral film. When we talked about, is this a horror film? No, this is a cop film. And I enjoyed this as a CSI investigation film exploring some deeper themes of when you profile, do you get into that mindset? Can you take that too far? I like this. So yes, I recommend Manhunter. Stewart. I recommend you see Manhunter and then I recommend you go read Thomas Harris's Red Dragon in that order. Because if you do it in reverse order, it's much harder to recommend Manhunter. I thought I loved this movie based on earlier recommendations. Because you're right, because the visual sense is so strong. It doesn't matter if we're relating to any of these characters. Or Lecter's kind of a cameo and not doing what Hopkins did. It's all about the mood and this pervasive, stylish mood. But when you realize the story that they had and didn't tell... It's aggravating. I'm frustrated that we didn't get Thomas Harris's vision here in this stylish piece. I'm pretty confident we'll get it again, but we'll get it through Brett Ratner. And I just know that that's not going to be as stylish. Maybe it will be a better police procedural, though. So I'm optimistic, but this is about Manhunter. And I'm going to have to say that, yes, if you ignore your strong, positive feelings about the novel and just concentrate it on Michael Mann's vision... If you concentrate on what you see, you will enjoy it. So recommend. And I've really been on the fence on this because, Jacob, I agree with you that this is a very visually striking film. If it was a four-minute music video, I'd probably recommend it. But you said that there's about 30 minutes during the second half where you lose interest. There's about 30 minutes in the second half that I think are really good. And the rest of it... It just failed to engage me by and large. And I really point it down to bad directorial choices by man from everything Stewart's telling me here and bad acting on the part of William Peterson. I found the first hour of this film to be gorgeous tedium. And it wasn't until Dollarhide came in 
that I really started to find characters I enjoyed watching, characters that seemed to have an arc, a story that really engaged. But can I recommend a film that you have to sit through an hour of doldrums to get to the good part? No, it's too little too late. And so I'm giving this a week not recommend. Hmm. It wouldn't have taken much to make me recommend this film if Hannibal Lecter had been more used, if Brian Cox had been more charismatic, if William Peterson had taken one more acting lesson. Maybe I would feel different. <laughs> Several. <laughs> Maybe even if that last song wasn't a heartbeat. Maybe if they'd replaced it with Don Johnson's heartbeat song, I would recommend this. How did that not end up there? You know Don's pissed. He's like, I wrote a song called Heartbeat. Why didn't you use that? It's not like he didn't know Michael Mann. He's like, Michael Mann's like, nah, nah, we're going to go with this. They wanted Don Johnson to act. No. Don Johnson wanted his song. No. Apparently Michael Mann was a little Don Johnson doubt, as were the rest of us in 1986. <laughs> it's sad to me that I don't recommend this because I remember loving this film. I watched it quite often in high school. I remember thinking it was right there with Silence of the Lambs. I hope I don't think that next week when I watch Silence of the Lambs. Well, we aren't there yet, but I gotta say, I had so much deja vu watching this movie and knowing what we were going to see next week. There's in many ways, so many similarities in the way the story is constructed, characters, lines of dialogue. I mean, were you guys having this feeling too? Oh yeah, when Lecter says you haven't threatened to take away my books yet, that's something very much Silence of the Lambs that didn't make any sense here. Yeah, he's got a real taste for it. I know Silence so well, I can quote it. And so when the quotes popped up here, I was like, whoa, this is weird because it's the movie I know, but it doesn't feel at all like the movie I know. And I wonder, could Michael Mann have made Silence of the Lambs? Had this movie been a hit, would he have been able to step up and tell the story again from the perspective of a woman? I don't think of his films ever strongly featuring a strong woman character. I've never seen him take the perspective. So I wonder if it would have worked. But if everything happens for a reason, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Man walked away from this project. It was considered a failure. And One Man's Trash is Dino DeGlorentz's next franchise <laughs> that they even made another one. And he was not discouraged by the fact that Manhunter didn't make money because he held the rights to Thomas Harris novels that he would go forward and make the reason why we're doing this podcast series, Silence of the Lambs, next week. I can't wait. The only thing I can say is it's actually a ding in my mind to Thomas Harris that these two stories are so damn similar. Yes. I'm, books and nachos, I'll get more into that about how the books feel before we even talk about the movies. The movies don't feel anything alike in the way that they're made, but their stories have similar bells. The novels, because it's written in the same voice, yes, it's definitely something that'll come up. So check out Books and Nachos, Silence of the Lambs next week. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And remember, if you guys want real horror films, we're also doing The Exorcist right now. <laughs> like The Exorcist, the beginning, a real horror film. We're going to be talking about this Friday. It's the conclusion of our five-part Exorcist series. You can get that with a donation of $10 or more. And remember, your donations do help cover Now Playing. We're not just pocketing the money and giggling to the bank. We're covering our costs, our bandwidth, our three. 3D movie tickets. And if you donate $25 or more, the bonus Friday podcast continue with The Thing starting next week. Thing from another world, 
John Carpenter thing, and new thing that's come out in theaters in a couple weeks. We're going to do all three as a bonus trilogy, kind of like the way that we did the Poltergeist trilogy in the spring, and I think it's going to be great. Again, I don't know why, but always my childhood favorites end up being the $25 donations. I love Poltergeist growing up, and I love John Carpenter's thing growing up, so I can't wait to return to these. But the movies you hate will always be on Totally Free Tuesday. <laughs> Are we doing Marvel yet? Not yet. We're not doing Marvel yet. Please give me Silence of the Lambs. Please give me Lecter for four more weeks. And then we can go back to Punisher and whatever else Marvel we have to do. Yes, then we will punish you. <laughs> yes, four more weeks till your punishment. Well, Jacob Stewart, we will be back next week with Silence of the Lambs. I do wish we could chat longer but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. I regret it came to this world, but every game must have its ending. Remarkable boy, I do admire your courage. I think I'll eat your heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series. That was good. Be sure to head to booksandnachos.com each week as Stuart will be reviewing the original Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter novels. Oh, I'd love to get you on my couch. And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another Hannibal Lecter film. So you'll be wanting lots of these little chinwags, I take it. And in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as the X-Files films, Final Destination, Inception, Avatar, X-Men, and many more. After all, as your mother tells you, my mother certainly told me, it is important, she always used to say, always to try new things. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these films with other listeners. We could have some fun. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. You're very frank, Larry. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. But pro quo. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Quid pro quo, You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Now Playing's Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Tedious. Very tedious. Credits performed by Jen and Brock. I'd give you full credit, of course. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM Pictures, Orion Pictures, or the Weinstein Company, and no infringement is intended. Remember what I said. If you can't be polite to our guests, you have to sit at the kiddies' table. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. That doesn't interest me, Doctor. Frankly, it's it's the sort of thing that Migs would say. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. You fly back to school now, little starting.
So we will be back next week with Silence of the Lambs. Thank you for joining us. I need a good sign-off line. Does you, you really do need a good line. Yeah, that, that was it. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, that's a little much, but yeah, something. <laughs> something. Yeah, well, you said you can quote Silence of the Lambs. Are there any yeah. good quotes? I'm, I'm trying. Um... Um, All right, I got one. And until next week, are the podcasts silent, Clarice? You might want to work on that. We could record I, next week after you see I the I can't movie. do a fucking Hannibal Lecter. I can't. Yeah. Um, I could just try to not do a Hannibal Lecter. And until next week, the podcast is silent, Clarice. I feel like that's not your line. <laughs> um, if this is a video podcast, you could tuck your penis between your legs and dance for us. <laughs> Put the lotion in the fucking basket. <laughs> Oh, don't you hurt your dog. It um, puts the donation in the PayPal or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> if, this were a pay- if this were a donation series, you'd have to do it that way, but you can do that next week. I don't feel like that's your line every week. Oh, shit. It needs to be a lector line. It really doesn't. shouldn't be Buffalo Bill. Um, here we go. Uh, You're looking at quotes on IMDb? Yes. Yeah, might as well. <laughs> Kidney and fava beans and that's yeah, what I was trying to think of something with that. Yeah, I don't know. Meeting an old friend for dinner. Ah, uh, here we go. Well, Jacob Stewart, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that's my sign off every week. You're not gonna do the sucking sound. <laughs> It was a bad time for fashion. I don't care what they say about the 70s or 60s. The 80s might, they are the worst. They are the worst. You can't go look back and not just wince, just wince at how people thought they looked good. Well, if they're not the worst, they're at least the loudest. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. I think there was something ironic about the way the 70s fashions was so ugly. I mean, I think they knew that it was ugly. I think it was part of the rebellion. But the 80s, we thought we looked good. They They thought they looked good in the 70s. They thought they looked good in the 60s. It's the delusion of time and the mortification of seeing yourself in it. (laughs) I lived in Florida at this point in the 80s. So you think it's bad, you know, in the midwest imagine in florida where everything gets even louder and more pastel oh come on in southern california growing up as a kid i don't think i owned anything that wasn't a neon color i loved (laughs) neon color clothes when i was a kid in the 80s who are you wearing ocean pacific everything yeah i know op yeah town and country yeah all that stuff good stuff and the swatches (laughs) with the guards Yes, we could do an entire now fashioning about 80s fashion, but... Kim Greist? Uh-huh. Joan <laughs> Allen. Okay. Can either of you do a good Hannibal Lecter? No. I mean, good as in better than yours? Probably. <laughs> but not like a, an accurate Anthony Hopkins, no. Can you do a Brian Cox? <laughs> <laughs> Will? No, I can't. <laughs> All right, hey, I have... Cox kind of always looked like he had just smelled a fart in that movie. Didn't he, he has huge just... lips. I don't know what it is, but his <laughs> lips are big. He would grow into those lips when he got gained about fifty pounds. And you said he was drunk, but I was just like, no, he's just Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> he just seemed like every line was like slightly drunk and a slight slur to it. Well, he it's probably the was, you know. <laughs>